So actually the cash we had left in the bank a week after FAM's launch could not pay the streaming bill that we had amassed. So we went into complete crisis mode. Two weeks before Christmas, <laughs> so the worst time of the year to try and raise capital. That's Giuseppe Studo. He's the co-founder of FAM, a group video chat app for iMessage that quickly grew to over 1 million users in just 10 days. But FAM almost didn't happen. It was a pivot off another social app that Giuseppe and his team had built for, initially as a joke, high school teens to chat about sports. After iterating on that product for months, they noticed that there was a real need for live streaming video apps. House Party and Facebook Live had just launched, but the team at FAM wanted to put their product where teens would use it the most, iMessage. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Frank Bavariano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Today we're speaking with Giuseppe Studo, the co-founder and CEO of a popular group video chat app, FAM. As a teenager, Giuseppe built computers for his friends as a hobby, but he never thought of tech as a career until later in life. Through college, he had the chance to take on a few different internships, which helped him uncover his passion for startups and consumer products. In 2010, while still in college, Giuseppe and a friend launched their own consultancy, building mobile products for their peers and larger businesses alike. A few years into building products for others, Giuseppe was bitten with the bug. It wasn't for long before he started to create an app of his own. Unfortunately, this was a startup that didn't succeed. At a crossroads, Giuseppe was either about to go back to business school or launch one more project with a few friends. SmackEye started as a bit of a joke product for high school students to exchange smack talk between sports teams, but it quickly showed some promise and Giuseppe and his team began to iterate. This second startup raised some money and would eventually become FAM. Giuseppe joins us to share his story, how he started to build his career in consumer tech, what it was like launching his first company, how he and his team created FAM, what it's been like growing this iMessage app, what it was like going through Techstars, and much more. So let's get started. Hi, Giuseppe. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Tyler, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on here and to speak with you. Hey, man. Franco and I are excited to have you on and to hear more about your story as an entrepreneur and what it's been like building FAM. But before we dive into all of that, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Where are you from? What was it like growing up and what did you study? So I'm originally from a town called Malden in the state of Massachusetts. I spent some time growing up in Italy, specifically Sicily, where my family is from. And I'm the uh, first U.S. citizen in my whole entire family. So growing up initially, I, I knew I wanted to be somewhere in business. I started college early at the age of 17. Uh, and I decided to follow in my older brother's footsteps and major in finance. Uh, I didn't quite know exactly what I wanted to do. I just knew that be something good to study, I guess. Um, but also in high school, specifically, I kind of had a technological type of uh, bug where I would build computers on my own uh, with some friends. I would also offer to build computers for my friends. This was kind of as a hobby. Never thought I'd go into technology in any way, but that was kind of like kind of a bug that was forming within me. But then kind of going to college, I figured, hey, real careers are in business and finance. Probably can't look to do anything technological off the bat. At the time, I was I don't know if naive is the right word, but I was unaware 
as to the opportunities that were out there. And it was kind of um, crowded with what my brother was doing and what, what people expected of me, I guess, following his, his footsteps. That first generation experience growing up. And yeah, so I grew up in Massachusetts my whole life, went to high school in, in Malden, that town. And then I went to college at uh, Boston University, but I uh, studied finance. So how did you start your career while still in school? During my undergraduate career, I was very fortunate to be able to work with some amazing companies and individuals in my undergraduate years. I uh, started uh, kind of private wealth management type stuff, which is more of a sales role. Then from there, I was fortunate enough to land an internship in, in some real estate banking, uh, working on the investment banking side of things. And then I uh, hopped to a sales and trading role at a, an equity research and quasi hedge fund type firm. Uh, and then I also had a short stint at a private equity uh, fund and fund of funds. And that's kind of where I, I started to see from kind of uh, my professional, at least at the time, my professional point of view, the opportunities that were out there within technology, because this fund in particular I work with uh, did a lot of work doing diligence on technology type companies. So now at this point, I'm Kind of let's fast forward to my senior year at BU. I uh, tried out all these internships. I had a couple of job offers on the table, fortunately, going into my May 2011 graduation. And I wasn't convinced that finance was what I wanted to do. And actually, at the same time, going into the fall, a friend of mine and I started a uh, software development agency. No intention of sticking with it at all when we first thought that we would start. I thought it would just be a project to make money. And then once I found myself graduated and doing this, it really hit me. And from there, just stuck with me. That's exciting. So with no formal background in technology, you decided to dive into building an agency. Can you tell us a bit more about this experience? So at the time, I had a uh, little technology exposure, nothing on the software side of things, aside of what I read on my own. But my uh, business partner at the time had a wealth of software experience from his own professional work and also from what he was studying at school at the time in Cambridge. And so I was kind of more on the product design type of sides of things, and he was on the software side of things. And our thesis for starting this agency was we both had a lot of peers in college that wanted to build the next big mobile app. So at the time, 2010, the App Store was still kind of fledgling, was a kind of like, what, three three years old or so. And there were all these apps that were popping up and, and people kind of knew it was where everything was going. Uh, and everyone had an idea, just like everyone has an idea today. Back then, there were just weren't as many resources as there are today. You really couldn't go hop on Code Academy or whatever and start learning on your own like you can today in terms of from the support standpoint. So there was a, an opportunity there to work with peers and classmates to try and build something for them and make some money. At the time we were thinking, let's build a big business and make a lot of money. So what motivated you guys to launch that agency? There was a big opportunity that we saw on, on behalf of our classmates that, that wanted to kind of build the next big app. Fortunately, my business partner and I had those skill sets. So we started to take contract work and would work with different individuals and in some cases, companies that were looking to maximize their digital exposure in the form of extending their current product or service form of a mobile app or someone who just had an idea for an entire new business to be built and centered on the mobile app to be built. So we kind of going through my senior year started to see the demand that there was in this in this particular industry, I guess, in the agency side of things. So I figured, hey, why not just continue doing this? We're making pretty good money. Pipeline isn't really slowing down. 
So I decided to take a big gamble there and just reject the job offers that were on the table and decided that I would work on this. Uh, it was called Octus Partners, by the way. I didn't really give it a name. That was the name of the agency. I decided I would work on this following graduation, and that's what we did. So now we're going into 2011. I graduate, continue working on this company, and we're generating some pretty healthy revenue. And then going into 2012, I really wanted to work on my own project instead of you know building these awesome experiences for people why not build our own yeah it makes a lot of sense to help fill you know that need in the market but then as you mentioned you know you wanted to build a product of your own and that project was called zowler can you tell us more about that and what it was like to finally be working on something for yourself so i was going to all these different lounges and entertainment venues and seeing that you know, people were being forced to use cash. And this is the time was when I think Level Up was just gaining some steam, but it really wasn't truly mainstream at the time, especially within the entertainment community. So seeing that everyone was still having to use cash at the door, I was figuring why not implement a payment processing solution for everyone to use right from their mobile device and be able to gain rewards and loyalty programs and all that good stuff, which at the time I hadn't yet learned that you want to focus on one thing, one specific problem and execute it. Uh, and I can kind of get into that later on and how it's come into importance with our current company. But anyways, started that company, signed up a lot of entertainment venues in the Boston area, very limited success in the form of user adoption and, and even technological progress. At the time I was working with an outsource team that was doing the actual programming. So at the time, I, and even to date, I can kind of build a very simple mobile application myself, uh, but I don't have a computer science background. So when it gets deep into the kind of logic side of things, I've never actually built a modular distributed system myself. Although I, since then I've gained a lot of knowledge in that area. But at the time, I really didn't know what I was doing. So I was working with an outsource team and I learned a lot, put all my money into that project that I had made from this uh, from our this agency that I had started in college, and it failed. I lost all my money, um, and it really wasn't a success at all. And then going into 2013, really was deciding to kind of close it down since there wasn't much traction, and I was trying to figure out what my next move would be. So at the time, kind of a year and a half, two years out of college, and I have you know one quasi-successful business, and then followed up with a kind of a failure. And now going to 2013, I started to volunteer with a, a great nonprofit called Build. And I was thinking about maybe going to business school. And then at the time, Smack High was born kind of as a joke. So it was originally just a Twitter account that uh, a few of us started that would basically aggregate high school student news submissions that were initially centered around sports rivalry, Smack Talk, hence the name Smack High. Uh, and then we would pick the most interesting tidbits and distribute them. But it was actually the teenagers themselves, or high school student curators is what we called them, that would curate most interesting pieces of content. So think a more responsible, curated version of Yik Yak. So I mean, at the time, I don't even think Yik Yak launched. I think they launched later in 2013. Uh, but anyway, so we launched, and it was kind of picking up steam throughout 2013. We were thinking, wow, there, there could be an opportunity here. Then going into the fall of 2013 is really when it started to pick up steam organically. And that's when myself and, and all of us really figured this could be a, a pretty big business opportunity if we execute correctly over the next several months and years. So going into the late year of 2013 is when I had to make a decision. Am I going to continue with my plans to go to business school and, and try and kind of formally put myself on a different, more professional track? Or am I going to jump back into the entrepreneurial arena? Obviously, we all know I did the latter, fortunately, and decided to kind of double up on uh, a new venture. And that's when I started to I invest a lot of my own money into Smack High. 
And that's when I decided to not apply to any business schools, continue to volunteer with Build, which actually at the time was very appropriate because we had a high school student demographic and I was working with high school students at this nonprofit. So it was pretty cool uh, experience where I was able to learn a lot as well. So anyway, Smack High was born, now going into 2014. Myself, my two co-founders, Frank and then Kevin. Initially, it was myself and Frank that were kind of throughout 2014 working on Smack High along with some of our awesome team members. And then later that year, in the summer of 2014, we still had no long-term product direction, uh, but we knew there was a big vision in connecting uh, high school students specifically in this demographic, which really didn't have a good way to distribute and share content that was meaningful to them. Because at the time we were doing it you know, through Twitter, a, a series of Twitter accounts, there was a web component that we had built, but it was very rudimentary where it was just a, an aggregator of content. And then all the distribution would actually occur on Twitter. But we met Kevin Flynn uh, in the summer of 2014 at WeWork, and he was iterating on some mobile products at the time. You know, he saw what we were building with Smack High and how we had such a vibrant community of, of high schools across the country. At that point, we were growing organically in New York and Massachusetts and Connecticut, list goes on, but we, we lacked a truly native mobile component. And Kevin was working on his own uh, mobile apps that we thought could work with this teenage demographic. And and most importantly, we just started to pack away together at different projects to see what would work with this teenage high school demographic. So we, you know, we fell in love working with each other. So going on at the end of uh, 2014, we decided that we would tackle uh, Smack High together along with the, our other team members who were with us at the time, 2014, early 2015. And that's when the, the vision from a product standpoint started to fall into place with Smack High, where in early 2015, we now had a lot of data points in terms of what worked with teens and high school students. And we had a pretty good community that was built, that was engaging and active, started to put together a product thesis. You know, how, how can we truly bring this to the next level? Because what would happen was the tidbits, the, the social tidbits would be posted to our Twitter accounts and then the live conversations that would ensue would actually then just kind of go exist on Twitter. We would lose all of that engagement. So we wanted to figure out a way, how can we own the true engagement where people would actually interact with each other on a daily basis? So we raised an angel round in, in the spring of 2015 through a series of relationships that I was fortunate enough to develop. So unfortunately, Zowler didn't do so well, and you were then at a crossroads, but decided to continue down the entrepreneurial path with your second startup, Smack High. Can you tell us a bit more about what this startup was all about and what had really motivated you to start it? I mean, I'll start with the second question first. What motivated us to start Smack High was kind of, it was unintentional, where we were using Twitter and a basic web page to aggregate high school student news submissions on sports rivalry talk. So it was kind of like a joke to us and we would have, we would let high school students curate the most interesting pieces of content. So it was very little product in the beginning. But as we saw the traction that was occurring with such little product where we were using a website that was connected to a bunch of Twitter accounts to create these vibrant high school student communities, we knew that there would be a big opportunity there. And that's when I was able to kind of bring the experience I had in building prior mobile products and web products to the table in the sense of uh, you know sound product development cycles and all that. And we had a very rudimentary product in the early days. And it wasn't until Kevin came on board later in 2014 where he took it to the next level, right? Uh, you know, kind of my experience was able to get it to a certain threshold, but Kevin and his expertise in building products in a more dynamic fashion was able to kind of use his prior experience in, in building a dynamic video experience, for example, uh, and just his understanding of how to execute and 
conceive a big product vision. It's kind of how I was myself and Frank, I should say, we were able to do it in the early days through our know-how of this demographic and our experience in building simple products to that point. And then we were only amplified that through our, our other co-founder, Kevin. So you guys ended up taking Smack High from what started off as a bit of a joke to an MVP and then transformed it into fam. So how did that happen? What caused the pivot in the product? Yeah, well, that's quite a story. On a high level, it was just a lot of listening to users and iterating on the product, right? Just to give you an idea of our operation, one of my co-founders, Frank, he heads up our community and growth. He's talking to users every single day. And I, I, I do that a lot as well. But you know, he's the one who heads that up. And he constantly feeds over feedback to uh, myself and Kevin. And Kevin internalizes all that feedback and makes sure that our next set of product iterations kind of reflect and, and serve the pain points that we were identifying in this kind of feedback that we were receiving. So that's the kind of operation you just keep in mind as I go into what, what occurred, just so you can kind of visualize it in your head and imagine what was going on in our office. So we launched Smack Chat in late 2015, uh, which was supposed to be kind of the, the mobile product to take all the content that was being posted on Smack High into group chats. So people would then have those conversations in those group chats on our own mobile platform. That had very limited success, both from a user acquisition standpoint and retention standpoint. Then we started to see that indicators were taking us more towards video. And also it helps that Kevin has always had a thesis around video. I mean, one of the products that he worked on when we first met, uh, I think it was called Wave, was a GIF messenger app because he, he thought that it was always the best way to express yourself was through video. And it just so happened that his thesis that he's always had from a product standpoint was resonating with a lot of feedback we were seeing with our teenage users. Where going now through 2016, we knew Smack Chat would have, wouldn't really work from a scale standpoint. It just wasn't really what our users wanted. The way I like to refer to it as we were trying to solve for too many miracles at once. We wanted users to migrate to our own mobile app. Then we wanted them to have all these kind of vibrant conversations on our own platform when they were already having them on other platforms. Just a disaster in terms of how much we wanted the user to do. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, so going through the summer of 2016, we knew that we had to be in video just because from a user feedback standpoint, it was just pretty clear. And then we launched Smack Live on the 10th of October, 2016. And that was a, and that is, it's still available for download, a group video broadcasting app. So users can broadcast themselves in groups of up to four to large audiences with the end goal of gaining a social following. And the inspiration there was Kevin's always loved video, number one. Number two, we saw what the users were telling us both qualitatively and quantitatively because one marketing campaign that we started back in the spring of 2016 was Snapchat takeovers. And we saw the demand of users want to take over our Snapchat account was growing exponentially. So we knew that users would broadcast themselves if we built something for them. And then in terms of implementation, we looked at the spectrum of video apps out there. And you know, on one end, you have private-like experience experiences such as uh, Uvu and at the time House Party, which just came out. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have more public broadcasting use cases such as Flurry, YouNow, Facebook Live, Periscope, etc. So we, we knew we, we, we wanted to be somewhere in there, so we built the hybrid version what we thought would be cool, called Smack Live. And then going into November, we started to see that the most meaningful cohorts from an engagement standpoint were those who were using it to just hang out with each other privately. So we knew that we now had a conflicting use case. Thankfully, we had a lot of touch points that were already simmering in our mind. So one, we started to see a lot of our teenage focus groups in the form of group chats uh, were using an app called Game Pigeon, which was an iMessage app, actually. And this was already, it was picking up steam like crazy. 
So myself and Frank would see this, and then we, you know, we would talk to Kevin about it. And Kevin started to dive deeper into iMessage, given that their development platform opened and opened up in late September. And then uh, when it came time in mid-November that we had to kind of do something with this conflicting use case in Smack Live, we figured why not take this touch point? We had conviction over taking this touch point of iMessage and putting group video within it. And Kevin actually was the one who pioneered that thought. Uh, he was the one who said, hey, let's just take group video technology we built and let's put it within iMessage because we're seeing that there's a lot of activity there. And he hacked it together. Uh, him and another team member of ours did it in the course of four to six days or so after you know thinking about it for a while. And the initial prototype was was working and, and then kind of turned it into a final version one product that launched on December 5th. And we thought it would have some impact. We're like, you know, a successful launch will get 10,000 users, maybe 15,000 users over the course of a few days. And it turns out we had a million users within 10 days. Um, and wow, then, that's incredible. But, yeah, it was quite a ride. But in short, going back to what I was saying, constant cycle of learning, iterating, and testing over and over and over again in the form of multiple products with a team that knew how to access and collect user feedback and turn it into product. And, you know, I, I wrote an article actually on, on listening to teenagers. And the best way to do that, I think, is in group chats. And all of us think that. And we do that. And uh, it happens to be an iMessage group chats. Well, as you mentioned, you guys noticed that live video was starting to become a thing. And you guys saw that there was, you know, a unique niche of making it available within messaging and on iMessage in particular. So what was it like building a consumer app in that type of environment? Yeah, so it was... Um, Interesting. So first, it was a little unbelievable that no one, you know, Kevin always talks about it, he couldn't believe it when he, he saw that no one built group video for iMessage. And the reason it's unbelievable to us, still is to date, is because, you know, I, I wrote a piece on this recently where it's a clear trend that more and more teenagers here in the US are using iMessage as their preferred social universe. They obviously snap on Instagram, they spend a lot of time on, more time than they do on iMessage, right? But they go through phases of using Snap and Instagram that's related to their mood and whatever else is going on in their life, right? But 76% of them, this as of this year, have an iPhone. And 81% of US teenagers estimate will be their, their next phone. So that's more saturation than any mobile app out there and any platform, period, out there. So if you take this thesis that teens are using iMessage more than anything else, that's where group video belongs, at least for the beginning, right? And then, of course, it should scale to other messaging platforms. But we see iMessage as being the kind of center, kind of social operating system on their phones moving forward. So we knew it would be a very native, organic, and natural use case to, to express yourself in dynamic ways through video with an iMessage. So how have you guys approached growth? Did those, you know, 1 million users in 10 days all come from just the virality of iMessage or were there other tactics involved? Initially, there was a very small budget for us to experiment on different influencer type accounts. And at first, because we wanted to test out different versions of copy to see what brand positioning and messaging resonated most with this demographic. And we did that only for a few weeks, actually. And we haven't done any of those since earlier this year. So I would say that served as maybe an initial spark for why it happened so quickly. But in terms of why it happened at such a large scale, clearly because of iMessage. You have all these social circles that already exist on iMessage within the U.S., for teenagers. And the kind of the inherent viral nature of the product 
where the core action is to send a fam to your iMessage group chats. So kind of that being one within itself is just a recipe for pure virality. And we expect it to be kind of main distribution uh, lever as we move on. That's really amazing. So you guys have raised just under $4 million. What's your approach to raising money for a consumer app? And do you have any feedback for other entrepreneurs? Yeah, it's a great question. So it was difficult uh, at first. Actually, it's always difficult, right? It's never easy. Definitely helps to have traction. But let me back up a little bit. So we're in Boston. Boston is not really known for consumer social type applications. There's a lot of consumer, but when you're talking within the context of social, there's just not many that have kind of spawned in Boston and stayed in Boston. There was Facebook, but I think Facebook probably spent, what, only a few months in Boston. It's in San Francisco now, or in California, I should say. So raising capital for our consumer social vision was pretty difficult, but thankfully, you know, our, our numbers spoke for its, for, the, for itself and the team that we had assembled also spoke for itself. And we were able to partner up with very prominent angel investors in our first round that had ties to institutional investors. And they, they advised us and groomed us to making sure we were ready. We were also very fortunate to be a part of the tech stars. So we were in their we were in their 2015 Boston class, uh, and then we continued to just truck away and and build our community. And we were then you know we met our current VC, uh, one of our VC partners, Jeff Busgang at Flybridge at TechStars, and he loved our team. He kind of he loved the vision that we had and and how we were able to get traction with such little resources. We weren't even working full time on it at the time. We were, but we were just received the angel funding. So we were only working on it full time for several weeks. And he thought that we could do a lot if we scaled a little more from a capital raising standpoint. And then from there, we were able to raise our second round. Most recently, our, our third round, which was in December, uh, was mainly triggered in part due to the explosive growth out of FAM. So actually, the cash we had left in the bank a week after FAM's launch, could not pay the streaming bill that we had amassed. So we went into complete crisis mode, where it's now two weeks before Christmas, so the worst time of the year to try and raise capital. And I called up our two main VC partners, Jeff and Peter, and said, hey, so the money we have left in the bank is not enough to pay the bills as of next month. What are we going to do? So as you can imagine, that made for some interesting conversation. But thankfully, they were super supportive, and we've always been very transparent with them. And we were able to kind of go into fundraising mode, and then one introduction led to another. Several trips out west, we were able to raise from some amazing new institutional investors and advise, and, and angel investors, both from west coast and east coast. So what I would now answer your question, your second question more directly, with that all said, what I would advise companies that are in a consumer space, particularly social, is to make sure you have traction. One thing that never works, and this is what I've learned from experience from several few years back now before Smack High, trying to raise capital, especially for something that has limited validation from a business model standpoint, you really need traction. Because if you're trying to just raise money to build something, it's a losing battle. And you shouldn't waste your time. I mean, there's plenty. I don't, you know, at the time I was working 100 hour weeks from all the different jobs I had trying to pay the bills. And I was still finding time to work on Smack High. So the excuse that you need to focus full time on something to build it, I don't buy it. I mean, even I believe Kevin Systrom with Bourbon app and Instagram, you know, he at the time was working at a coffee shop building the initial versions. So do that, have traction. If you don't have traction, I highly recommend you don't try and, waste, and raise money because you're just wasting your time. Uh, and then once you have traction, 
focus on surrounding yourself with the best people possible who bring the most out of you and also complement your skill sets. That's just as important. Uh, and once you're confident you have both, then try and develop those relationships and raise capital and be very persistent and prepare yourself to, to get a million no's before that first yes. That's amazing. And talk about a great way to ring in the new year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it was stressful. Uh, but being right. able to close that that 1.8 million in a matter of a couple of weeks right before the new year definitely made was worth it and then uh and then you know the panic started all over again you know (laughs) so you mentioned that you guys were part of a cohort of tech stars in 2015 what was it like going through the program for you guys so it was an amazing experience in short so the way the program is structured is they, you know, they want you to meet a bunch of mentors in the first month, then the second month, execute on your product, build up your metrics, then the third month, prepare for fundraising. So for us, it was a little kind of the inverse because we had just raised an angel round, we were admitted into the program, and what we were hoping to get out of it, which we did, was to establish a very strong culture of product builders and, and uh, enthusiasts and make sure that we were you know, able to build our team on the right foundation. And of course, surround ourselves and expand on our network. But we, you know, we just raised capital, so we weren't in dire need of funding. But then, you know, we got our first VC term sheet within, I think, the first week of the program. So that put us into fundraising mode right in the beginning. Again, we closed that round, and then the the rest of the program was just execution for us. So it was at the perfect time. I think. You know, if you if you feel like you're at the cusp of an inflection point uh, in the form of traction, uh, you're going to be entering a phase where you're building your team. A program like TechStars is perfect timing. So I, I, we were very fortunate where our business life cycle at the time lined up perfectly with what TechStars had to offer. That's amazing. So what's next for FAM, especially with iOS 11 about to launch publicly in a few weeks? Yeah, so we're we're gearing up. We have some exciting updates coming over the next several weeks. You know, with the the iOS 11 enhancements and leveraging all that. Currently, internally experimenting with ARKit and seeing if we can make the group video experience even more immersive. And uh, we actually also will be releasing what we think is going to be the kind of the next step in the user journey of FAM in the form of FAM Mail. So what that's going to be is basically, you know, if you're if you're unable to connect synchronously with anyone in your group chat, you can now also connect with them asynchronously in the form of a video voicemail. So where you can now do a group video with an iMessage if no one's around, you can leave a fan mail right in, right in iMessage. And you're able to leave an asynchronous video voicemail that way. So we, you know, kind of things like that that we're working on and obviously getting ready and ramping up for the school year because now all these dense network effects will kind of come into play and, and we'll be able to leverage those dense network effects at schools to ignite further viral effect and, and, and usage. Sounds great. Really looking forward to following the upcoming releases and see how you guys continue to evolve the product. So on a different note, what are some of the apps that you turn to for inspiration or just really enjoy using? That's a good question. Let me just get my phone out and check it out. So I re- so it's a lot of re-downloading. So I, I download and delete apps all the time. More so, not as much, used to be storage related, but also I just don't like having a lot of apps on my screen. 
So one app that I recently re-downloaded just to check out was Monkey, which is a basically kind of like a chat roulette type thing where you kind of the end goal is to get someone's Snapchat handle. if You think they would be a good friend of yours. Uh, just to kind of check out what they were doing. Uh, recently re-downloaded Marco Polo. So it's kind of like a walkie-talkie app for asynchronous messaging. I think it takes what Snap does and makes it even more seamless and makes it more artistic in a sense. Then I also have their more the public GitHub repositories. Uh, so downloaded a couple of AR apps to see what can be done with new AR kit and uh, on iOS 11. But anyone, if you have Xcode, you can just go online and search for some of them. They're pretty cool. And then um, downloaded Blockfolio, which is a cryptocurrency app. So basically you can kind of track different cryptos that you're following or you may own just to see how they're doing then what else duo google duo just to see kind of what they were up to and medium download the medium mobile app never had that until recently and that's really about it and then on my home screen of course you have twitter facebook instagram whatsapp messenger bam of course top uh snapchat and uber lyft Cool. There's a lot of good apps in there. So we'll make sure to link to those so that everybody can have a chance to check them out. And, you know, on the AR side of things, I'm also really excited to see all of the cool new apps that will come from that. Yeah, it's definitely something we're, we're still exploring. We, we haven't definitively concluded on anything yet, but we think it'll, uh, Kevin particularly talks about how he thinks it's, it's going to kind of unleash a whole new wave of innovation. It'll be interesting to see how we think about leveraging it if we do. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to link to your recent articles on why iMessage is going to be, you know, the next major platform. But are there any other resources that you keep coming back to and would even recommend to others? Yeah, no, absolutely. For anyone creating any consumer service or product, it doesn't even just need to be a social app. It'll be any consumer product or service or experience. I think Sarah Tavel's piece on the hierarchy of engagement is a must read it's beyond a must read you you just you don't read it you're crazy that's a it's a medium post yeah i completely agree i, I reread that by biannually and i actually referenced that in my iMessage piece recently then uh, most recently i've read chaos monkeys so that's this group uh is written by antonio rodriguez I, I forget his last name antonio something and uh he basically he had a company at grok Went through Y Combinator, he sold it to Twitter, and then he went to Facebook, and then he talks about his time at Facebook. But it talks about every phase an entrepreneur can go through, where they start, they're at a company, start a company, they sell their company, they work at a bigger company, and it just, it's, it is mind blowing how much can be learned in just a short read. And then the Airbnb story, also another book I think is a must read because it talks about how, I think it really highlights how the Airbnb team founders, I should say, in the early days, hacked their way to whatever bit of traction uh, where, I mean, they literally funded themselves by selling boxes of Obama O's cereal, literally. That's how they funded their company because they just didn't have enough traction in the early days. So it really speaks volumes to the importance of persistence and sticking with it. And then also, I think one thing that's becoming increasingly important for entrepreneurs to be aware of is just this whole kind of crypto and ICO type phase we're entering into. Even if, if you don't think your service today is something that will relate to any blockchain type technology, I think because it's becoming a more popular fundraising vehicle, if it makes sense for your product, doesn't really make sense for FAM today, but I think it's important for entrepreneurs to just be aware of that trend 
and stay educated because it's definitely becoming an attractive uh, investment vehicle for products and services that make sense for them. I mean, one company in particular, I know, of, you know, they found a perfect fit for having an ICO and tokenizing their community. And it's, it's so far it's working. It's, it seems that it's going to be working out great for them. So definitely keep your eyes peeled for that and constantly learn about that as well. Yeah, those are some really great resources. And, you know, the ICO trend is definitely something to follow, especially with Kick about to jump into that very soon. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's there's a, the jury's still out on a lot of it. Um, and I, I mean, I think that it's it's a very particular specific use case for why it might work for your startup. But I think it's just something interesting to keep track of, to your point. Absolutely. So you've shared a lot of different things with us today, but do you have any final thoughts or personal models that you live by and you think other people should know about? My favorite one is just do it. I guess the Nike motto, but I swear I didn't even realize it was the Nike motto until someone pointed it out to me when I said it. I just never thought of it that way. But it's something that I, it's, it's a mantra I live by where constantly, and I used to be this way too, right? Where in the early days before Smack High, I would try and over plan everything and then think the first version of my product would be perfect. Never turns out that way. And you always have to constantly iterate on your product. And I think you need to have the mentality of just do it with anything in life, not even just a startup, just everything, your, your personal, your professional relationships, everything. Just, just always try and make yourself better. Always try and just execute the product as quickly as you can in the sense of, you know, instead of spending two or three or four weeks planning what you have in mind for a perfect solution to a problem, just get a website up. There's so many resources today where you can build something in a matter of a few hours or with very little to no technical experience at all and just try and experiment and get live data in the door. Uh, and then also persistence. I think persistence outdoes everything. It outdoes how smart you are. It outdoes how well connected you are, how wealthy you are. You know, the ones who are most persistent are oftentimes the ones who come out on top. So that takes over everything. Uh, and always keep that in mind. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Giuseppe, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share it with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us a line, hey at hacktostart.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.